Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt, and welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I'm very excited to announce that our Kickstarter, Botany of the Cascades, has been fully funded. Thank you to everyone who shared the link, and special thanks goes out to everyone that donated. We literally could not have done it without you guys. All the rewards will be coming out this fall, but in the meantime, stay patient and check out our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash plants, for all of the wonderful updates that are going to be coming in over the next couple of months. All right, what do I have for you today? Joining us today is entrepreneur, author, and all-around houseplant enthusiast, Summer Rain Oaks. You may know her from her wonderfully successful YouTube series, Plant Went On Me, or her foundation, Homestead Brooklyn, but she's here today to kind of talk to us about her journey and how plants have shaped the way she looks at the world. It was a real joy and pleasure to sit down and talk with her, but before we get to that conversation, I've got one order of business to take care of. If you're enjoying this podcast and you would like to support it, please head on over to patreon.com slash plants and see what we got going on over there. For a little bit of money each month, you can get yourself kickbacks like stickers, access to the VIP section of the indefensiveplants.com website, and for those of you looking to get a little more in return, you can even get yourself a producer credit on this show. For instance, today's episode is produced in part by Clifton, Tim, Lisa, Susanna, Homestead Brooklyn, Daniela, Brody, Kevin, Sophia, Brian, Plant by Design, Mark, Katharina, Sammy and Sven, Renz, Bendix, Erene, Holly, Mountain Misery Farms, Caitlin, Rosanna, Mary Jane, Manuel, Jennifer, Sarah, Sienna and Garth, and Margie. So thank you to everyone who has given this far. It really does mean the world to me, and I'm so happy to see that that list continues to grow. In Defense of Plants could not be doing this without you, and I mean that. Every little bit helps. And if you stay tuned over the next couple of months, I've got some exciting announcements other than just our Botany of the Cascades documentary. And uh, a lot of it has you to thank. So again, patreon.com slash plants. Consider helping it out. If money is not your thing, which I completely understand, at the very least consider subscribing to and reviewing this podcast on whatever pod portal you use to download it. Reviews not only help me make a better podcast for you, but they help In Defense of Plants reach a wider audience. And if we want to cure plant blindness, we got to get this podcast to the most people as possible. So give it a review. Let me know what you're thinking. All I ask is that you be tactful. All right, everyone, entirely enough rambling for me. Let's head on over my conversation with Summer Rain. I hope you enjoy. one to kind of get rid of and yeah (laughs) so anyway so I ended up washing it off with some soap and uh, picking them off and it was only two leaves so I think I I think I got everything nice well that's awesome well yeah summer rain oaks I gotta say it's an honor to finally get you on the podcast how about you tell a little bit about who you are and what it is you do well firstly thanks for having me on your podcast I was so thrilled when I came across your podcast I was uh I it was like one of the few places that I felt like I could really nerd out again, um, which I, I do miss since leaving university. So uh, thank you for having me on the podcast. Yeah, but I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania, which, you know, I live in New York City now, but northeastern PA, I always say is like worlds away, but it's very, very close, geographically speaking. Yeah. 
and I really was like a, I guess, a kid of nature in Pennsylvania. I really loved being outdoors. I had um, a very beautiful plot of land that my dad built a house on that was between farm and field and forest, and I, I really didn't feel like I needed much else, you know, to be able to explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of my parents were mad gardeners, and they still are mad gardeners. I think that's where probably I get my my green thumb from. But uh, I was interested pretty early on in art, and but all of my art was inspired by nature. So I think I, I knew pretty much as a kid that I inevitably wanted to go to school for environment, environmental science and and ecology, kind of, I was always interested in kind of like systems and the small things, the things that often get overlooked. So, so yeah, that's a little, that's a little bit about me, about growing up in Northeastern PA. Very cool. And it's, it's funny, uh, you know, we had kind of conversed a little bit leading up to this podcast, but how much of our lives uh, have paralleled one another, (laughs) which is pretty incredible. I myself grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania for a little bit, and it it really is worlds away from anything in New York in a lot of ways. (laughs) So yeah. you had this background a little bit, at least with your parents and just romping around the woods and just getting into nature. And you mentioned university. Um, you know, what did you go on to do? How did you take the next step with getting closer to nature in that way and especially plants? Well, I knew pretty early on. I knew when I was 13 that I wanted to go to Cornell University. I was really driven as a child. Um, but so. Uh, <laughs> um, so I worked my butt off in order to go there. I went to school for environmental science, and I later picked picked up entomology, um, the study of insects. And really, I think how I kind of found myself there was just some of the opportunities that I was able to kind of take up, I, I suppose, and, and people who I guess saw you know, things in me. So I was very involved in what was called the Envirothon. I don't know if you were involved in it at school, but it's, uh, you know, it's like a high school environmental competition. And, uh, you know, we did very well. We won regions and then we went on to states. And um, the gentleman who actually managed the Envirothon, I think, saw my enthusiasm and kind of knowledge. And he eventually later gave me you know, one of my first jobs as a teenager, which was working at the Lackawanna County Conservation District. And I was, you know, able to do a wide range of jobs. So like when a lot of kids were maybe uh, pumping gas or at the grocery store, I was in like hip high waders, you know, checking the biotic index of streams. Um, He tasked me with uh, creating the planting plan for a mine reclamation site, which if we're talking about northeastern Pennsylvania, we can't talk about northeastern PA without talking about coal and acid mine drainage and brown fields. And, you know, and, and, you know, I grew up probably 30 minutes from Scranton. So, you know, we had a plethora of, of mine sites there and sometimes shrouded from view, things that you typically wouldn't see. But once you kind of just travel a little bit into the forest and you see these like huge culm piles, which if people aren't unfamiliar with the word culm, it's just basically the waste product of of the coal industry. And um, and this has, you know, been a huge issue for Pennsylvania and for the health of the forest ecosystem within Pennsylvania in many different ways. I'm not just talking about the destruction of kind of the land, but all of the, you know, acidification that comes from burning coal really is, you know, Pennsylvania. We were we were battling with a, a pH of, I think, 5.5, if I remember correctly. Oof. And it was really, you know, destroying kind of a class A trout fishery. And that's how it was really um, 
marketed, I guess, to the surrounding area because the people care about their fish in Pennsylvania. But um, you might think like 5.5 is not terrible because seven is neutral. But, you know, as many of us know, the pH is on a logarithmic scale. So 5.5 is, you know, 10 times 6.5 and 7.5 is 100 times. So it makes a difference. And and it's much harder for plants to thrive in that kind of environment. Um, They can't uptake a lot of the macro and micronutrients that they need in order to survive. And I think that's something that has been affecting Pennsylvania's ecosystem as well as more mountainous you know, terrains in the area because it tends to have a more acidified rain uh, up in the mountainous areas. So that was like a really interesting kind of experience for me as a teenager to be able to to really, quote unquote, like get my feet wet in every <laughs> single part of the word. And I got involved in kind of this thing called the biosolids program, which was taking waste, you know, our waste product, sewage sludge, so to speak, and, and packaging it up to farmers. And then this got me thinking, well, is this actually healthy to begin with? So that's kind of where my research started to unfold. And actually, when I was 15, I went to a wastewater management meeting. I went, I took the bus up to Cornell and I, I went into this wastewater management meeting with the uh, Cornell Waste Management Institute um, obviously, prior to me getting into to university, and I busted into the doors, and you know, it's like a a bunch of you know older people in this meeting, and they looked at me like this kid, and they're like, "Why is who is this, and why are you here?" And I told them I was working on this program, and I think that they were probably impressed. And later, when I got um, you know accepted into Cornell, I ended up working for the Cornell Waste Management Institute, and of course, they remembered me. That's <laughs> so, awesome. so um, it was uh, it was really good. I mean, most of my research actually there involved around health related incidences revolving around the land application of sewage sludge, and then also toxic organic contaminants found in sewage sludge, which you know in many different ways could accumulate within in the soil, but also could be t- taken up by plants. So, um, so there was a lot kind of like that really unraveled for me kind of in high school going into university and I think got me really involved with seeing kind of the interconnections of the environment. Um, but I always felt like my one thing that I felt that I was decent at at least and that I enjoyed was being able to communicate these issues out to a wider audience and being able to distill science in a way that is like much more acceptable. And I think that was kind of some of the things that I was toying with in university is hey, how can I actually take what I'm learning and be able to convey or communicate it out to a wider audience? Oh, that's awesome. And that's it's an incredible trajectory to have is, you know, the whole time you're talking about this, it sounds like someone's giving their dissertation the way you've kind of addressed <laughs> these issues. And then, you know, you kept reiterating, like, oh, this is happening when she was a teenager. So it's cool to see someone that's made those connections so early on and to see kind of how that's informed your trajectory ever since. Um, so... I guess from there, I mean, where did plants really start coming into the picture for you? I mean, was there a crystallization moment or was it just kind of part of that bigger picture that was all forming in your head at the time? I really think it was part of a bigger picture, but there's a few things in my memory banks that I can't ever kind of jostle away. And there's a couple different things that I kind of absconded with as a youth um, that you know, really stick in my mind. And one of them was my my uncle, uh, who's a great kind of an inventor and he lived in Germany for a while. He got my brother this really amazing telescope or not telescope, um, microscope. And my brother never used it. So I kind of absconded with that microscope. And it was great because they had 
you know, onion cells and diatoms and they had, you know, blank slides that you can make yourself, which I totally used, nice. you know, the full, full, the full went whole hog with that one. <laughs> and, uh, and I miss it. I like want my microscope back. And then, um, the, the other thing too, is that my mom had, uh, an Rodale herb book from nice. like the 1970s. And that was really my first kind of plant book. And I think one of the things that I really enjoyed with as a child was, uh, I was very, you know, kind of enchanted and enamored by Native American culture. And I really loved the idea of being able to like know what the plants were and how they were used. And so I think the herb book really kind of brought that full circle. So, you know, as as a youth, I think I that was something that really attracted me. I think I also was really attracted to the weeds in my mother's garden. So, you know, things like purslane or soapwort. Um, and I used to like love crushing the, 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 the leaves of, of soapwort and get the saponins out of, um, uh, out of the leaves and the purslane and being able to eat it, which my mom professed would be like the worst weed that she had. But, um, you know, as you know, weeds are just plants unloved. Um, so, so I think that those are things that probably really stuck with me. I definitely was interested in insects as a child. And I, I've heard a number of people come on your podcast about like they were in insects and they went into plants and plants and insects. But, you know, I think um, just like kind of being around plants and um, and, you know, having them in my life, particularly living in the city, which I think I could probably speak for a lot of people who had, you know, grew up in a rural area or even a suburban area and then moved to the city. And, um, you know, I've, I've quite frankly, like surrounded myself with, with plants and you probably see, I have like close to 700 plants in my house, <laughs> in my Brooklyn apartment. And, um, I have a little over 400 species now I'd give or take, because I don't know how many I picked up from the Fairchild, which I just came back home from, but, <laughs> but, um, you know, it was a way for me to, like, I didn't set out to like build a forest in my house, but it was a way for me to feel like home again and, and to feel you know, close to, to nature and to, you know, kind of, you know, be intimate and kind of study it and to also feel calm in a very kind of frenetic city. Um, there, there's so much that I think plants offer you and you don't need any kind of scientific literature to tell you that it's, it's just, you feel it in your gut. Sure. Um, so, so yeah. So even though I didn't, you know, study specifically botany and it was actually, uh, my, uh, wetland science professor, and she was my advisor, Barbara Bedford, who is like a more preeminent thinker in kind of wetland science. And I took a class from her also called Landscape Impact Analysis, which really left an impression on me. And early on, I, I told her, I said, I, you know, I don't really want to concentrate on just one subject within ecology. I, I you know, it's, I don't want to just, I love ornithology. I love botany. I love entomology. And you know, she looked at me and she said, well, then don't concentrate, <laughs> do it all. And I was like, do it all. You know, that was like the best kind of advice that I could get, totally. you know, because oftentimes we, you know, build a fence around our mind and our own abilities and our own passions. And, you know, she could have been very practical where it's like, oh, no, it's, you know, much better if you concentrate and you focus and you have a reductionist approach to this kind of particular view. But instead, she kind of broke down all the fences for me and said, oh, no, do it all. And allowed me to kind of like stumble and figure it out. And 
um, go running, you know, forward with, uh, with, you know, maybe some naivete. And I think that's really, you know, arguably, I think it's, it's served me well over the years. Sure. And it it kind of sounds like it's, it's really always been about the connectedness of it all and kind of synthesizing the big picture of everything. And like you said, instead of focusing in on these tiny little topics. And, and that's why I think so many people that come on this podcast, you yourself, including start with insects and insects are just this wonderful gateway drug into kind of the interconnectedness, especially as it relates to plants and plants kind of setting this foundation for, uh, for life as we know it. But then to have someone, a mentor, a great mentor that fosters that idea of curiosity and just to kind of explore it all. Um, that's super important. <laughs> Yeah, and one of my other great mentors, uh, you might know his name, Tom Eisner. He's the founder of Chemical Ecology, and he was actually roommates with E.O. Wilson, and he oh, unfortunately, geez. you know, um, passed uh, not not too too long ago. Um, and he was such a great influence in my life. And I had already been commuting to New York City while I was in um, Cornell, and I was kind of like working full time and going to school full time, and it was like a really kind of crazy schedule for me. And, um, and Tom did a class called For the Love of Nature. I'll never forget it. And he, nice. it's, he had um, classes on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I, I could really only take classes Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and maybe sometimes on Friday. So I asked him if I could sit in. I didn't want to just take his class and, like, get an easy A or anything like that. And um, we became, like, great friends. And the whole premise behind his class was bringing in people who really had love for nature, whether they were poets or... TV personalities or whether they were inventors and they would come in and talk about their love for nature. And his whole premise behind the course was when you're in university, you often get so caught up in the minutia of it, of like the mitochondria and like how cells work and all of this kind of stuff that we we do um, in our daily lives. And sometimes we lose track of why we love nature in the first place. And I think that those classes, even though they're like, quote unquote, like softer classes or some would say like easy A's, I think that, you know, you don't always have to look at things that way. It's something that really kind of gives you a gut check and like puts your feet up firmly on the ground again. And and I, I'm always like every six months, I'm always asking myself, am I doing what I really love? Am I doing what I really love? Am I, you know, am I being like the full of my fullest self? And I always go back and think about that class because I think that's um, a great you know, cornerstone of, of my, you know, college, you know, career of like thinking about Tom and his impression that he left on me. I mean, I really did have some really incredible mentors like in university that have been formative in my career and kind of my thinking as, as an adult. Oh, that's so cool. That sounds like an amazing class. And something that I think a lot of universities could probably rally behind and, and see a bigger benefit from because, again, like you said, uh, people get really caught up in, you know, how does these cell functions work or what are those transport channels? And you, you forget sometimes, especially, you know, I'm in the thick of it, to step back and go like, why am I doing this? Yeah, There's a reason sure. here, right? And I, I think one of the big things is, is like, would you rather sit a kid down and teach them about the parts of a flower? Or would you rather say, go find a thing that you think is cool, bring it back, I'll help you learn what it is and then tell me everything about this. It's this idea of inspiring. And I think Mm -hmm. inspiration is super important in terms of not only just motivating people to get off the couch and do something, uh, uh, take the next step with their career or their passion, but also just to kind of get out and appreciate what's here while it's here. Because this lack of appreciation, I think, breeds a uh, a lot of society's issues. Yeah, absolutely. And and in that same right, you 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 know, it's 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 always a struggle because you can't 
walk away from the fact that we live in this kind of like economic system. So there's always this, you know, fine dance along the line of like being clear with what you love and your ultimate goal in life and then how that actually works within the system that we found ourselves in that sometimes we feel like we have like no control over. And um, and I, you know, really am a person who kind of believes in, you know, kind of sensible risk taking. Um, and I've really, I think, crafted probably a career for myself. A lot of times people like don't know what I do, um, which I'm kind of fine with because it often changes from year to year. And so if people say, oh, well, what do you do? And I'm like, if I just wrote a book, I'll say and I'm an author. You know, a few years back, I started my like a venture back company. So when people ask what I did, I was like, I'm an entrepreneur. So I think that kind of changes and I'm really comfortable with it might make other people uncomfortable with it. But I think that one of the things that I like to encourage people to think, especially because, you know, some of the challenges that we face in the environment are much larger than what we had maybe ever expected even 10, 20 years before. And so oftentimes I encourage people to think that careers are the jobs that don't necessarily exist yet. That, you know, and so we have to kind of create like our own paths. And I think as, you know, we kind of move towards this stuff of like gig economy and um, and more freelance and like, you know, um, more kind of like social influencers and all this other kind of stuff, it gets really messy. And um, and I don't think people could kind of corral, you know, just like one, um, you know, one idea around a career any longer. And I think that. You know, it's been interesting for me to kind of play, you know, kind of in that that messy, muddy ground and figuring out, well, how do how do I use my skill sets as a person to be able to communicate my ultimate goal, which is to like reconnect people with nature and um, and to, you know, I'd rather see obviously conservation than reparation. That was like one of the things that, you know, um, I, I think I probably took away from working on a mine site that, you know, why do we need to retrofit? an already broken economy when we could actually have the answers out there for something that was that's new. Um, so I, you know, there's there's certain things I'm going off on a rant here now, but I think that, you know, my main point of this is to, to say that like, a, you know, a lot of the jobs or the careers haven't been created yet. So I think that that idea of going back to what Barbara said, you know, don't just like focus, concentrate on doing it all. I think that there is um, a place where we could kind of like take the fences down in our mind and and craft like what that career, that future career might look like for for us. Totally. And I think any more today that's happening faster and faster because at any point in time in my childhood, I couldn't have fathomed that you and I would be sitting here with a computer screen talking to each other from many hundreds of miles away, right? So things right. happen and they're happening a lot quicker. But You've obviously undergone a great amount of evolution uh, since, you know, your college days and your teen years, and you've come a great distance uh, in, in terms of what you've done. You've mentioned you've done a lot of different stuff. So what kind of happened after those university years that really kind of set the stage for, you know, the summer we, we know today? Well, I think like a big portion of my career involved not plants so directly speaking, but I, I really wanted to challenge myself with being able to connect environment to a broader audience. And I wanted to challenge myself in an industry that I thought had no business of being like environmental and um, and I thought was furthest away from the environmental um, issues that I was kind of like very passionate about and am passionate about. And so I chose the fashion industry because it was very mediagenic. But um, as we all know, and we're kind of sitting in our respective like you know, uh, 
fashion garments, like, um, you know, they, they're usually made of plants, if not a petroleum, you know, that were plants, uh, you know, compressed over hundreds of millions of years, um, then probably a cotton-based product or a hemp or flax product or all sorts of different types of, of plant products. And so this was really interesting to me. So uh, I became very much involved within fashion and kind of crafting the two words together of sustainability and fashion. There were very few designers at the time who were kind of doing that. And um, that idea of like sustainability and fashion were very unfamiliar bedfellows, I would say. And um, eventually created a company called Source for Style, which is now called Le Souk, but it's a B2B marketplace that connects designers to more sustainable material suppliers around the globe. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so this was kind of huge because the textiles industry is like a springboard for national development for many different countries. And, um, and all these countries are getting the burden of, you know, kind of the textile waste or dyes, um, unsustainable dyes uh, in their waterways. I mean, just a, a myriad of issues. But um, so this was a way to kind of like influence, you know, how do we actually create better textiles from the start? And not surprisingly, this really connected back to my sewage sludge research, which, you know, when I was, you know, studying it, uh, we were seeing everything from triclosan, which is like, you know, an antibacterial that's in our toothpaste or in our deodorants to brominated diphenyl ethers, which is usually sprayed as a flame retardant on our textiles to nonalphenols, which are the, you know, sap, like, you know, um, you know, kind of the soapy sudsies type of stuff that we'd see like in our detergents that we wash our clothes with. And all of this stuff was kind of getting into our um, wastewater stream and eventually onto our land. So uh, I'm being uptaken by our food. So for me, it was like, it was all like, I was like, why are we trying to change the 503 regulations here? You know, let's let's nip this in the bud, you know, where, where it kind of starts. And so that for me has been like a really interesting journey, like working on kind of supply chain. Then eventually I moved to um, supply chain and food, where it's like, how do we get more organic local food to to urban centers. And while I was kind of like working on this and doing this and focusing on kind of like healthy eating for healthy food systems, my home went viral. And, <laughs> and um, for the, you know, for those who, you know, kind of like, you know, are tuning in, um, you know, I have close to 700 plants in my home, um, about 400 species and uh, quite a few different varieties. And um, people had always written about my home in the past, um, but it never took off the way that it had in um, 2016. And it hasn't stopped going viral. And I think that there is just this, there, there is this change in media, but there's also kind of this, uh, I think a change in appetite of like people feeling really disconnected with nature and, and attracted to this idea of, you know, having a bit of nature indoors. And so I'm the kind of person who's like very sensitive to this kind of underlying emotion. And so as, you know, I saw this kind of uptick in my place going viral of just like, this is how I live. <laughs> um, it became another opportunity for me to say, oh, well, is this a way for me to reconnect to that, that ultimate goal, which is to connect people with nature? And I feel like that's kind of like my whole North Star. And if I'm doing it through what we wear or what we eat, or what we put on our bodies, or how we surround ourselves, and how we like style our life, then you know what? All of that is the same for me. <laughs> it all gets me to the same goal. It just is another path to take people. And 
I'm a firm believer that we always have to kind of meet people where they're at in their lives. And quite frankly, not all of us are in the same mindset. So if you could kind of meet people where they're at and then take them on that journey with you, then that's, you know, kind of where I would like to be. And I, I feel like that's something that I could I, I could do for humanity. Wonderfully put. And uh, I want to come back to that, the, to meet people where they're at point in a minute. But yeah, I, to, to mention your home, which is amazing. Uh, that's my introduction to you. And so that was what was so exciting is when you reached out to me, I was like, wait a minute, I think I know who this person is. And then went through that. But your, your apartment is is literally full of plants. Uh, and I love that because mine, to the best of my abilities, is, is as well. And that just feels very kindred of us. And there's something to be said for the fact that you live in New York City, right? The, the Probably the least natural place in North America that I can possibly think of. And when you talk to anyone about these environmental issues, a lot of what people talk about is this disconnect with nature that children are having these days and that the fact that rural areas are shrinking and urban areas are growing. And that's risky because, you know, there is an inherent risk that people aren't going to see that connection there. But I think you stand as living proof that that always, does not have to be the case. You know, whether this is like some weird anecdotal thing that people just like to throw around without any sort of quantification of it, or if it's something true that we just need to work with, uh, you know, what you're doing, I think is really important. And again, I think it all stems back from this idea that you've always kind of taken this big picture look at things and understood that the connectedness is all there. And it's not necessarily just ecology. It's, you know, the food we're eating, the the clothes we're wearing, the, the chemicals we're putting in our stuff, it's all connected. And that's, that's pretty remarkable that you've been able to capitalize on you know, what you call new media in a way, uh, what we would just call media at this point, but, <laughs> and use that as, as, as really a tool for good and a tool for this message that you've always carried with you. Yeah, I think always the key is, you know, it might have a flashy package, but to make sure that the message is like, that it hooks people in and that the message is not too far behind. And that's something that I always kind of like, try to massage in and it's always you know kind of a hard thing to navigate um occasionally like i remember when i would be on like the red carpets or whatever and wearing like this fabulous dress and people are like oh darling what are you wearing and i'm like let's talk about something else you know or but you know by doing actually the the clothes that i would wear i'd always be able to tell a greater story behind them Mm. if i chose the clothes right because then i'm like oh yeah well this is designer x and she sources everything from 100 miles away and you know what i mean so it's it's a way to kind of hook people in and i want to do that with plants because you know you have this wonderful pool of knowledge of um, from ecological systems that you know you could pull from and if you could tie that together through your house plant which you see every day then that's kind of a a place that I'm actually intellectually stimulated by mm. um, so it's not really for me about you have to have the most house plants or this and that it's not about that it really is about getting that greater connection and that's kind of more of the space that I, now that I have a little bit more time and dedication to the plant side of things um, because I was on a, a, a book tour separately on a different subject which subject that I think is related but still different um, that it, it it allows you know, me to kind of like pull upon all that like great knowledge base that I've um, an experience that I've kind of had over the years and be able to wrap that up into a house plant. So I'm kind of excited about the, you know, kind of opportunities at the um, at the forefront and what the possibilities might be. But um, oftentimes, you know, it's a difficult thing for people to see until you do it. 
Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I understand. And I sometimes could get a little nerdy when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I think people are interested in it. But like sometimes people come back and they're like, no, that's too nerdy. <laughs> I'm like, okay, maybe I have to tone that down a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't know how often uh, people enjoy coming over and asking me about the plants I have because I'm like you're gonna unlock something here and I don't know if you're gonna enjoy the whole ride but but I, I do think I think like what I'd love to do and um what I'm doing and we'll probably mention this soon but I you know I launched a kickstarter called how to make a plant love you and it's a houseplant masterclass. and what I'd really like to accomplish with that is to help people think more like a plant and and to really get into the roots and the stems and the leaves of their plants so that People don't necessarily have to come to me and ask, like, well, what's wrong with my plant? I really want people to kind of assume the kind of body of their plant, if they will, and think a little bit more like the plant in order for them to answer that themselves. And I think that's kind of like what's, you know, different with our education system. We're, we're learned to memorize and to recite, but, you know, we've lost that opportunity to kind of like question and sit there and kind of like ask, you know, a little bit more of like what the plant needs, not what you need from the plant. And I think as soon as we kind of change that, have that behavioral shift, then it allows us to be much closer to our plant and, um, and to be able to read a little bit more into it. And a good example of this, I'd like to say, is that when I do workshops on kind of plant care, one of the things I ask people is, take a look at each of these plants and there might be like a selection, whether they're succulents or whether they're non-succulents or whatever it is. And tell me a little bit about the the places where these plants are from. And some people might not have any idea, but if you start to kind of look at the plants, whether they have like Kalankoe tomentosa, if it has like these these white, thick white hairs on like a, a succulent leaf, what does that mean? If it has like a dark waxy green leaf, like well, what kind of environment could that have possibly come from and then you start to get a sense of like you know maybe people won't ask me if this is a highlight or a low light plant when they start to actually be able to read the leaves a little bit like because they'd say oh well the the tomentose leaf is you know probably protects itself from the sun and i say well what happens when you if you go without sunscreen on a top of a snowy mountain when you're skiing and like yeah i get i get sunburned right because the the light hits and reflects and goes back well that tomentose that white kind of fuzziness on that leaf will kind of knock the sunlight back so it's kind of prepared for probably some scorching rays or you know maybe some of the hairiness will kind of keep the the moisture in and kind of like affect um, the microclimates around the leaf there's all these things that you could start to deduce from just kind of like looking at a plant and i think with this class and kind of the way you know that i teach and kind of the information that i want to share with people is not necessarily having people necessarily rely on me for the same question over and over again which is like part of the reason why i started plant one on me which is like my youtube channel which is like my like weekly q a's because i was getting the same question over and over again and i'm like okay, let me do just like this weekly series where if somebody says, well, how do you water your plants? Or, you know, how do you go about fertilizing your plants? I I could say episode 16, episode 14, and just point people to there. And then it has like this encyclopedia of information. But hopefully as people kind of see things and then I do things and that they say, oh, I understand your thinking behind this, then they could actually be a little bit more adept at taking care of plants for one and two, becoming more interested in them as well. 
Sure, and that's one of the things I love about it is it's just how accessible that series is that you've you 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 are making. I can't even say that you've made that. It's just this ongoing just brain food for people that are curious about these sorts of things. And I think you know, in the last couple of years or so, we see that people really are starting to come back around. Houseplants are back in vogue, and it's you kind of want to raise that awareness more than just like, oh, I got this cute thing in a pot for this the next Instagram pic, but you're taking it to that next level of being able to appreciate these as organisms, right? And that's one of the things I love about growing plants in the home is that no matter what time of year it is, I'm sitting here with a living organism that's breathing, it's growing, it's doing things. And, and you know, far from feeling like, oh, you're watching paint dry or watching grass grow, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, you're actually interacting with a living creature. And, and plants can be incredibly dynamic. They just do it on their own time scale. Do you think, you know, having yourself surrounded by plants at all times in your home like you, you are, do you think that's connected you both to the botanical world and but also the environment as a whole? I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in in a way, I, I do travel probably less now than what I had been, um, but which is probably testament to the the plants that I have in my home. Um, but but when I do travel, like I was just in Costa Rica, I was in Indonesia, and you go to these places, and it's so surprising when you actually see your your house plant like growing in the wild, yeah. um, albeit maybe in like a larger form or a more aggressive form. Um, but there's there's this connection immediately that you have um, because you've you've had this kind of sort of intimacy with this particular plant or you know you've had battles with the plant you know whether <laughs> you're you know trying to keep the humidity up or what what have you but um, but I remember when I was in Costa Rica and philodendron varicosum which is this like you know wonderfully emerald green leaf with a kind of a ruddy wine colored merlot underside and some fuzzy petioles um, which probably grows like a weed and in most of like Central and South America, I would gather. Um, but, you know, seeing it for the first time kind of like out and noticing it, I think that that really kind of like, you know, makes you makes you tingle a little bit because <laughs> you, you felt like you had this kind of relationship with it for quite some time. And I love like how kind of the, the, the plants in my home have made it also their home. Like I have ivy that's like clung to the walls and you know, I have my Hoyas like wrapped around my bookshelf and I have the Sissus adenopoda, which I know is grappling for a kind of light with all the other plants and kind of has the upper edge because it has, you know, its tendrils and, and I love it. It's like this super dynamic situation within your home, as you were saying, and my Sundays are really dedicated to my plants. So I rarely give that day up for anything else. And, and that is a day where I like spend you know, I could spend one hour, I could spend eight hours, I could spend 10 hours, you know, with my plants, You're just like taking care of them and watering them. And for me, I kind of describe it as like a moving meditation. And I want to encourage people to have that kind of like pause in their life. I have a friend who has a ton of plants as well. And he's like, oh, I get so nervous about them. And I'm like, really? And I, he's like, yeah, you know, I'm like, well, maybe you have too many. I'm like, <laughs> It's kind of one of those things where you have this like hoarding syndrome, but like there's also the, the space where you feel comfortable with it and it feels manageable. And I think to the point where it starts feeling unmanageable will probably defeat the purpose mm. of having them in the first place, particularly in the city. Yeah, totally. Because <laughs> you do have to, you do have to care, you have to take care of them because you are, like I said, taking them out of the environment. And I have a really good friend who is a forager who professes that she has a black thumb. She was never good at gardening. And she's like, with foraging, you just like pick where it grows. 
Um, but she had, you know, had said to me, she's like, uh, in, in one of the podcasts that I used to do, she said, you know, indoor plants are prisoners of war, mm-hmm. uh, like kind of are in their own prisons. And you know that they're not when they're actually reproducing. And that really, really stuck with me. So I, I always think about it from the perspective of like, is my plant actually reproducing? Is it putting out flowers? Is it putting out offsets? Am I giving it the environment as close to the environment that I possibly can that it might have had, you know, in an outdoor environment, you know, and I think that those are, again, some of the questions that you start to ask yourself, because seeing something outdoors, and it just like thriving is very different from, you know, taking it indoors and giving it a a different kind of environment, and then expecting that it'll survive, because that's not always the case. In a way, you become a caretaker of that plant. Yeah, I, I feel like you're inextricably linked at the point in which you bring something into your home that is living. Uh, you know, you're the caregiver, you're the person that has to be responsible for the life of that organism. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, going into the wild and seeing your houseplants growing in nature for the first time is just, it's a, an amazing experience. And, and, and it does kind of change the way you approach growing plants. Like I struggled with so many peperomias until I realized like, oh, these are growing in the barks of trees in the wild. They're growing in like moss on a branch or something like like that and then suddenly you go like poof oh they're epiphytes of course i'm i'm root i'm killing them by rotting their roots yeah yeah precisely and and you mentioned peperomia and peperomia is like one of my favorite if not like the favorite genus of mine and i have like 50 different varieties and you'll never be able to collect all of them um, which is I think a good problem to have unlike like cycads or something where people go crazy because they feel like they could collect every single one um and um but yeah with 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 that, you begin to understand, you're like, yes, of course, you know, if I, and if I am going to put them in soil, make sure it's damn well draining so that it actually, like, it doesn't rot the roots. And I think that those are things that I think are, you know, really important to see firsthand. And then the fact that you're, one, noticing them, two, that you could identify them, and three, you could take away that information and kind of utilize it within the home. And then I think, like, for for me, then, that's, that's the whole thing, because then people will be, like, more curious, hopefully, and allow themselves to kind of, like, come outside their home. And I'm, I'm a big believer, and it's not just about, like, how you craft your space, it's how you craft your community and your wider community, not just your local community, but your broader community. And you really create the life that you want to live. And so it's not just about like having some houseplants and making it pretty within your home, but it's about like, what can you give beyond your your four walls? And I feel very blessed and lucky that I've you know finally been able to get into a community garden here and I've become very involved with my local community. We're working on a chicken coop at Los Sures, which is a you know, senior citizen service center um, that also works with like food security in the area. And these are things that I think are really important and that kind of like, you know, brings people a fuller life. And it's all, uh, you know, it might start with the house plant, but you don't stop from there, you know, and that's, <laughs> and that's kind of like the glorious message that I think that I want to share. But, you know, you use the house plant as a way to kind of communicate that. Sure. I mean, for me, it was uh, understanding the, the complexity and the importance of conserving soil, but also water. Um, the way we use water, the way water gets filtered, the way water is wasted, you know, water becomes very precious, especially clean, good water when you take care of plants. And then when you go outside and realize like, oh, my God, we're not we're not doing a very good job at this. So it is it, it does. It's a gateway to this bigger, again, connectedness with the outside world. And, and there is an imperative to get out and not necessarily on a global scale, but at least get involved in your community and, and take that next step to to be 
a better human, <laughs> really. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like, growing up in the Northeast, like, you never, I, I took for granted, I think, that your point was, like, wa- water. Um, you know, I took for granted how, like, the the amount of water we often it would like get floods and then I went out west and I just realized like water rights and the issues that they were facing out there and you could just see from a local position how how cherished you know that resource is and um, and it does it makes me a little bit more sensitive to to everything like a plant makes me sensitive to the light outside um, because I you know want to know is this like too much light is my leaf photo oxidizing is you know my do I need to like have shades here is it getting you know too hot of light is it too intense for too long of period um to the point of like i was watering my marantaceae the prayer plant family and it was they were getting these brown edges but it wasn't humidity because the humidity is is quite high and i started to realize it was probably the salts like within the water or you know some of the minerals i started to filter the water and or getting distilled water for certain plants that are very sensitive like for instance like i have my venus fly traps and you know i i do not put like my drinking water in there you know i really use you know just only distilled water and i think you become a little bit more sensitive to perhaps like what's in your water that maybe won't harm you but like you also just become a little bit more aware of yeah. it yeah, sure. Okay, so you mentioned it a little bit. Um, you know, you've got a wonderful social media presence. You're doing a lot of great outreach uh, and just pro-plant plugging uh, across the board. But you mentioned you have a master class that you're hoping to get funded. Um, yeah. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So last year, actually almost a year ago, I launched um, homesteadbrooklyn.com, which is a way to connect people back to nature. And um, and that also transpired a YouTube site called Plant One On Me, which is kind of like a weekly Q&A for people who have like plant questions. But I also do like field trips and go behind the scenes at botanic gardens and growers and very charismatic megafauna of growers, I might say. Some of them are more charismatic than others, but there's been really some fun episodes in there as well. And, I was, and I've been doing some workshops and a lot of people started to ask me like, oh, can you put your workshops online? But you know, my, your workshops are like 45 minutes to an hour and you don't get so in depth it's kind of very surface level like very perfunctory to a certain degree very 101 so I kind of want to combine again my ethos with like the workshops that I was doing and the plant went on me's because they've been fun to to film and kind of tie it all together into a master class which is what I'm calling how to make a plant love you uh houseplant master class and uh and I launched it on kickstarter and um, in the beginning of February, and we're about a third of the way there so far. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, you know, Kickstarter is an all-or-nothing platform, so it means if you don't raise the whole the whole hog, then you don't bring home the bacon, so to speak. <laughs> so I encourage everybody to to be able to to give that to that if you want to see you know kind of that come into fruition. And for me, like I said, this is part of a larger strategy, mm-hmm. and um, it allows me to actually most of the funds will actually be paying like the videographers, the illustrators, and the graphic designers. And I do a lot of the editing for, you know, my plant went on me is it's kind of like a one or two person show with that kind of stuff. And it's a lot to handle. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also believe that like I've haven't gotten anywhere in life without great partnerships. And I want to be able to, you know, pay the people who have um, talent in order to be able to help create truly a masterclass, like something that is really fun, 
engaging and enjoyable to watch and kind of take the next step than just kind of conversing with people on like my Homestead Brooklyn Instagram account or or even on the, the blog at Homestead Brooklyn, which is wonderful, but it's not necessarily as interactive um, sure. and as kind of dynamic as like, say, a plant went on me. And, you know, there's great houseplant information out there across many different Instagram accounts, across like many different places, but it's really dispersed. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have, you know, for me at least even, there's so many different places that you could go. So it's like, I I really want to create like a logical compendium for people to kind of follow. And surprisingly, there's really not much in the way of houseplant classes online, which is, um, you know, a, a serious void. Like you could go get certification at Botanic Gardens. So oftentimes they're a little expensive and also a little out of the way. Like I would even love to take some classes at my Botanic Gardens, but having to go there, you know, every Monday, Wednesday or Friday or something and have to travel all that way, you can't always make it. So this was something that I, I feel like I think that I could offer and not just offer to, you know, people in the United States or just New York, but but really, you know, the world. Yeah. And I, that's what's so exciting about it is it's just this access to information. Not everyone lives by a botanical garden. Even if you do, like you said, the, the ease of getting there multiple days out of the week to learn these things isn't always feasible. And even then, you know, the things that a botanical garden are doing aren't necessarily feasible in the home setting. So that's also very exciting. But as anyone that's listening to this or has followed you throughout uh, this trajectory is you know what you're talking about. You know what I mean? There's a lot of information out there, but there's also a lot of bad information out there. And to see it kind of consolidated into something that's easy to understand with someone that's charismatic and, and again, knows what they're talking about is super exciting. So, you know, like you said, Kickstarter's all or nothing. Uh, they're not easy to do as someone that just successfully completed theirs. Yay! Yay. Good job! <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but that, they're, they're not easy to do and they rely on people giving and in return you give something back so do you have some cool kickbacks in store for people that are uh yes i really i really um put some effort into the rewards and i actually just put up three more rewards for people but um one of the one of the things that people have wanted i did a a plant went on me on my very nerdy spreadsheet where it has like (laughs) the plant the scientific name for the plant and um, a bunch of care tips like what's the minimum temperature that it could have what's the maximum temperature what's the level of humidity Um, what fertilizer is best with this particular plant, how often you fertilize it, basic care tips, and then like your calendar of when you could actually schedule the last time you actually fertilize the plant. And I need something like that because I have a lot of plants. (laughs) And, um, and, you know, truth be told, like fertilizing is just around the corner, you know, it's spring coming. So, so I have like, you know, a couple of those spreadsheets that are available for purchase. Um, I have a foster hen with me and I just put up a, a little $20. You could get a thank you video with my hen. <laughs> um, Kippy, her name is uh, Rhode Island Red. And then I, I have kind of everything from organic liquid fertilizers for your plants to access early bird access to the course, which is great if people kind of want to like take the chances and save money, you know, up front, you could do that on the Kickstarter to beautiful product with um, a cooperative that I work with in Mozambique. I've kind of spent the better part of four or five years, like within Mozambique doing agroforestry initiatives and projects. And one of the products that has come out of that are these really high-end 
beautifully crafted, handcrafted wooden products that are made from noble hardwoods with a cooperative called the Mozambique Forest Center, which is one of the largest tree planters within Mozambique throughout the, the area of replanting the Miombo biome. And what I really love about that project and Alan Schwartz, who runs it, um, who actually started off as an architect, but now is, you know, kind of works in obviously this kind of like true to the path, sustainable development. And what I really love about the way that he looks at the forest ecosystem there and taking apart like the culture there, because the uh, Mozambique has like really suffered from, you know, civil war and a socialist regime. And obviously the outset of AIDS, it's probably one of the top 10 countries that still deal deals with um, AIDS. And, um, and what he's done with that area is remarkable. So he looks at a forest ecosystem and he's like, let's look at the forest and see all the different craft and skills and opportunities that we could get out of this forest. So, you know, let's do beeswax over here and then we could press oils over here. And then we have this coconut grove over here where we could use that as food grade products. And then we have this agroforestry initiative where we could grow moringa and, and restore the forest over here. And instead of exporting logs of wood out to China, you could actually train artisans, which is a harder thing to do, but you could train artisans to create really beautiful handcrafted product and create that opportunity and skill set there. So we have some of those products, bracelets, um, vases, bowls, and uh, oh gosh, like a host of other things. So producer credit on yeah. Plant One On Me, like there's all sorts of things that you could get. And I could even come to speak. Like I'm really like pimping myself out there with this project. <laughs> you could tell. <laughs> no, it's awesome. And you've done, uh, you've, you've made great strides in the time that it's been up. I'm super excited for you. And, and don't worry, I will be posting links to all of this that we've talked about on the, the link to this episode. So people can find it real easily Marvelous. they can see everything that you've listed and if you decide to add more and but uh yeah this is super exciting and i wish you all the best on that and uh um before i let you go i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about a couple favorite house plants oh yeah go right for it <laughs> what are you what are you really excited about growing like what is giving you a challenge and what do you uh hope to grow in the future well, I am never going to stop collecting Peperomia. I'm absolutely fascinated by the genus and um, you can never have enough. They're so diminutive and often um, overlooked as incredible houseplants. Some people struggle with them, but I think that they're just really kind of fun and wonderful to grow. I also think that there's a massive philodendron craze going and oftentimes you go to a garden center or nursery and you have kind of the run of the mill things. Yeah. But I think that there's a lot of great growers. Um, I just did an, uh, pod, uh, a vlog, and I haven't released it yet, but with Enid from uh, NSE Tropicals, and she often brings off like really beautiful different types of philodendrons that you typically wouldn't see that are probably from more like Central or South America. And, um, and so just growing different and interesting kind of philodendrons in the home, um, I think is, is a great way to go, especially if people have had success with them. But I also, from the succulent department, I love uh, Kalunkoes. They're probably my favorite. And I'm, I have um, this one called uh, Kalunkoe Bavardii, and it is just growing like crazy. It's actually wrapped around my hurricane cactus, which is, you know, oh, wow. draping down. And this one's growing up and kind of wrapped itself around. <laughs> and I think that they're just charming plants. They're very easy to grow. And I, I, I just love experimenting with new varieties, like some of the varieties that I brought up from the International Aroid Society show and also the Fairchild, our uh, Rhodospatha, which is 
you know, a, a part of the Eraceae. It's it's an aroid. I've never grown one before, so I think that would kind of be an interesting challenge. That's exciting. Yeah, and I have a little bit some more ficus. Like, so typically you'd see like ficus lyrata, or you'd see ficus elastica, or see a few different figs, you know, in the market. But there's so many different other kinds of versions. So I brought a, a couple different figs back from Fairchild that you know haven't yet rooted. So I, it's probably going to take months for them to root. But these are things I think that I'm kind of like interested in and um, challenged by and. I think it's always good to experiment and people are like, well, you ever kill a plant? Of course, you know, we all kill plants. Um, Unintentionally, sometimes, uh, you know, um, most of the time and sometimes like, you know, you get an outbreak of thrips or whatever and you can't control them. But but I think that's the important thing is that you get back on the horse, you try, you only become a good gardener by actually gardening and um, (laughs) and learning from your mistakes and being like paying attention to that kind of stuff. So those are the things that I think I'm pretty excited about, but I'm kind of excited about a lot of things. I could just talk about that all all day. (laughs) Yeah, I I completely agree. I'll try to grow anything you give me, but uh, that's awesome. (laughs) And it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you, but uh, you're making great strides and you're doing a great thing for botany and the environment. And uh, yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's it's so great to finally have you on here. And I love, I love um, that you're doing this yourself and I'm a full 110% supporter. I love um, people who are out there and kind of like shining a light on botany and science. And um, you probably didn't have the intention and didn't know where this was going to go, but I, I hope you continue forward with it because, you know, we're so used to getting like, you know, free content, but when content is good, like I also highly encourage for people to, to give to your podcast oh, because I you. think I'd, I'd want to see you continue to, to do this even after you graduate and all, all be and beyond. So uh, well, well I done really, to you. I really appreciate that. That means a lot coming from you. And uh, don't worry, I plan on continuing. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Very good. Well, well thank wonderful. you so much. Yeah, thank you. And uh, have a great night. Yeah, thank you. You too. That was awesome. How motivational. She is an inspiration to us all, and yeah, consider supporting her. Her masterclass sounds like a whole heck of a lot of fun. I thank Summer for sitting down and talking to us. If you haven't seen her YouTube series, make sure to check it out. At the very least, go and watch the tour of her home. Uh, And she has done well to surround herself with the organisms that she loves. So thanks to Summer for talking with us. Thank you for listening. Like I said, a lot of exciting things in the works, so please stay tuned, and the best way to do that is to click subscribe. All right, everyone, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios.